0: I remember specifically asking my parents more, like several times as if I were a lawyer, will this count towards my college application? Will this be on my record? Will, right. And they were like, no, this doesn't go to college. I'm like, are you certain the yeah. colleges will never know about what I do here? They're like, no, this isn't for college. And like, at that point, I was just in the principal's office all the time, never did any work. I was like, this is a place where I can do it ever I want. Yeah. yeah.
1: That was journalist Joel Stein talking about his experience at Hebrew school. We'll hear more from him later. Now, I don't know about you, but like Joel, I was not a huge fan of Hebrew school. My friends weren't fans either. In fact, I have yet to meet a single adult who went to Hebrew school and liked it. If you did, please email me at kibitzpod@gmail.com at gmail.com and tell me your story. Maybe we'll feature it on a future episode. So, yeah, I hated Hebrew school. I was constantly in trouble. My friends and I would often ditch and go to Tamarack Square Mall in Denver to play Galaga. I mean, Galaga sounded like a vaguely Hebrew word, no? In fact, I disliked Hebrew school so much that, I'm going to warn you here, please don't judge me too harshly on this story, but once I actually tried to burn it down the temple, where my Hebrew school was held. Okay, so don't worry, I was not at all successful. I mean, the temple was made of bricks, so I knew it wasn't going to burn down, but to me, setting a little fire next to one of the exterior walls of the building while on recess was just, it was like a symbolic act, a form of social protest. To this day, I'm not sure why I did it. I think my problem was School was bad enough, but here was more school, on the weekend, and it was just so boring. I mean, why did they have to take a history and a language, which today, as an adult, I find incredibly fascinating, and make it as stale and dry as the contents of a half-eaten box of matzah? In retrospect, that is no reason to burn it down, or even pretend to burn it down. Nonetheless, my teachers were not amused. Like I said, I, I was always in trouble i honestly don't remember how i was punished but it could not have been good i don't remember if they told my parents in which case i hope this will be another episode my parents pretend they loved listening to and my secret will remain with you dear listeners so it is back to school time and on this episode we're talking about education jewish education in particular Joel Stein will talk more about Hebrew School. We'll hear about a cool project called Character Day, which was launched by guest Tiffany Schlein. And I'll talk to Professor of Jewish Studies at Stanford Ari Kelman about why Hebrew School is a broken model and what it means to enter a college campus right now as a Jew. And of course, we'll have another heated episode of Kasher vs. Casher. So, pack your peachy folders inside your Trapper Keeper, inside your backpack, and pray your mom or dad packed you something good for lunch in your lunchbox, because it is time for another episode of The Kibbits. David Kasher is a rabbi. His brother Moshe Kasher is a comedian. Together, they're going to debate Jews and education. This is Kasher versus Kasher. Jews are known as the people of the book, and where you know where does that come from? Why? I mean, we've got this holiday celebrating the completion of reading the Torah, which is Simchat Torah. Maybe you could talk talk about that. But like, has that always been the case? Have we always you know is that?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a subject I feel very, very. Devoted to and passionate about. I mean, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you
1: a
3: nerd, bro?
2: <laughs> I don't know if it's always been the case. But I do know that with the destruction of the ancient temple in um, in Israel in the year 70, uh, there was a, a real calamity. There's a real e- existential question. Like, will Ju- will Judaism survive? And what ended up happening is this group of sort of scholars that we now call the rabbis came up with a kind of program for shifting the focus of Jewish religious life from temple kind of like worship of God to the study of the Torah. And, and to the eating of the matzah ball. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, a, sure. a little bit of both. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit of, little of bit. both. But yeah. mostly the study of the Torah yeah. and the study and the practice and the like. just the, the focus of the text of the Torah as the kind of foremost expression of Jewish religiosity. Yeah, And so ever since then – the great heroes of Jewish life have been scholars, have been— Nerd. Nerds.
1: Nerds. Straight up right? nerds. <laughs> so, so you are—and So no. and among which you include yourself, I assume. No.
2: I mean, I see myself in the rabbinic tradition. It's a tradition that I feel, I feel like inspired by and passionate about, so much so that I, you know, one of my kind of standard kind of uh, uh, critiques of, of contemporary Judaism is that we don't do enough studying are our, our, you know we we are so we, we go to synagogue and we pray but i don't think that's the most interesting jewish practice i think that actually if we sat around and and talked about ideas and philosophy and and literature like we ha- that's the real that's the core of jewish tradition and i think that i would i, I would i would love to get more jews studying and learning than in than you know, going sitting and, and listening reciting to the service. Yeah, yeah, no. I, and one like of
3: it. your one of your most often uttered phrases is actually, "Did I do that?" <laughs> because you're a big old nerd. You're a straight up dork like Urkel.
2: Well, I but, do uh, think I do think it's a religion for nerds. I think there's something that is true. There's but we something are nerdy people inherently that's, that's nerdy about that. it, and it's and it's and it's not. We're not ashamed of that. Like we d- we we lean into that, just sort of that that l- 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 way that the mind can lead you to. God and meaning and and community.
3: And part of it is the reason that we have survived so much. We talked about this on an earlier episode, the why do the Jews still exist? One of the very interesting facets of Jewish life because of its de facto positioning toward learning is that, its literacy rates were astoundingly high all through the dark ages which is also partially why people hated the jews in the dark ages cuz even kings and queens couldn't read and some jewish peasant could could you know muddle through the, the hebrew alphabet so we've had like unbelievably high literacy rates the whole time we've been around which is i think kept us sort of cohesive and educational and also probably is an explanation for why people think jews are smart it's not that we're uh, sort of genetically smarter than people, although they, that remains to be seen if it's true. Uh, it's that we just have always educated each other, and just as you know, if you're born into a family where education is a big value, well, then you it's easier for you to get on the second base educationally, and like a lot of Jews were born on third base educationally, just by being in this long tradition.
2: Yeah, look, and I also think that it isn't it isn't just that. We value education, period. And so we promoted it. I think there's a reason why this focus on the study of the Torah actually worked to foster that culture. And one is that the the literature itself is so rich and I, I mean it's a it's it's a shame that we that everybody doesn't study the Hebrew Bible, just as literature, whatever you believe, because just the 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 poetry of it, the language of it, it's much more, you know, it obviously it carries with a lot of baggage, you know, so people leave it behind because they don't want everything that it comes with, but just as as pure writing, it is it's worthy of constant and it has been reread and reread and reflected upon. That's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, this has become almost trite to say, but Jew, the Jewish approach to study. Is centered around questioning. And we, you know, p- people say sometimes, like, oh, I like Judaism, like, you guys, uh, you know, can question everything. Uh, that's almost become like a stock phrase, but it's true. There's, you see that in the rabbinic method of approaching the Torah, that, you know, far from accepting the word of God as kind of literally absolute, rigid, without any, um, any any broaching of questions, we tear everything apart and we we deconstruct and we analyze and we challenge it. That's that's our whole mode of study.
3: Well, it also goes back to what I was saying earlier about the lay people being literate enough to engage in textual deconstruction as opposed to like in the Catholic tradition. And there is no religion like this as far as I know where everyone is at a, such a high level of engagement with the text because like in the Catholic religion you have your intellectual uh, sect and that's the Jesuits but they're still they're priests and they're the intellectual version of the priests and most religions you have the there's an intelligentsia and then there's a lay people and in Judaism the lay people are as educated as a clergyman in another religion sometimes but I yep. want I wanted to also go back to what, David was saying, "I am not a Hebrew uh, fluent Hebrew reader, but it did really fascinate me when David was saying, like the engagement with the text in its original language is engaging. Because when I read the Bible, I don't feel what you what you see. I see like this is poorly written, sort of I don't get it. But David telling me that like when you read it in, in its original Hebrew, there are word games and and mysticisms built into the." Thread and the fabric of the language that a person reading it in a in a translation never even touches. I think that's pretty fascinating.
2: Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's really true. There's those, like all kinds of crazy word. Just to give one example in the classic kind of Garden of Eden story. So the snake comes in. It says the snake was the most cunning of all the or most shrewd of all the animals in the garden. And Adam and Eve are standing there naked. Well, it happens that the word for cunning or shrewd is the same as the word for naked. They're homophones in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. So there's some way that the story is sort of like linking the two characters in this way that like that suggests that maybe the snake was like particularly naked in his in his attack or that there was maybe even some sort of weird sexual energy going on like it's just, it, it, it remains to be sort of explored and analyzed what the link is but the hebrew the original hebrew is so full of those that sort of intertextual wordplay that it's a much richer experience than we usually see when we just kind of read the classic King James. When you're
3: at a certain level of learning religiously in Judaism, it's like you just always are pouring through these texts. In fact, they say that's why so many Hasidic Jews have glasses. Do you know this?
1: Oh, really? Because they're the other Because they're, so they're in the study yeah. hall
3: or whatever. What's it called? The bait bait midrash. Beit midrash. And you know they shuckle, right? You know yeah. they our Jews be shuckling. And they <laughs> so it's like they're going, they're rocking back and forth and so their eyes and the the, the book stays constant. It's on yeah. the table. So their eyes are constantly only focusing and unfocusing, focusing and unfocusing, and over time, that's very bad.
2: I, I, didn't, what is that I didn't start
3: wearing glasses until I went to
2: right. Shiva. No, did you have happened. to?
1: Do, did you do the back and forth? Thing? The
2: back and forth thing. Yeah, it's what part of that? the culture. Now, it's why kind of that? a meditative thing. It's hmm. it, that, is, that it kind of gets you into a zone where you're not. You're just sort of not thinking about anything else. You're just focused on. I mean, and that's that's what Torah study is to me. Is a, it's it's a form of meditation. It's kind of like it's 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 locking into a certain kind of. Consciousness—it's—it is intellectual, but to just call it studying is not enough. It's this way that the 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 mind intersects with the spirit, and I I just I find it—you know—Moshe teases me like I I always have like a book with me, but I find it addictive. Like there's something about this mode of study. You know that
3: is just—it's just exhilarating. Yeah, yeah that's have how you I feel tried about
1: Pokemon Go because that's—I did try that. That's, <laughs> that's I was boring. gonna go. I was gonna say
3: crack cocaine, okay. but uh, Pokemon Go is a much more, I would think, a gentler and a more contemporary example. Thank you. Every day,
2: there's a, there's this obligation in Jewish law that you have to spend some time studying. That's pretty remarkable for yeah. a religion to and kind that's of fr- mandate. And that's like in, that the, that's in the Torah? That, where is that? That's, that is, is derived from the Torah. That is to say uh-huh. <laughs> it is, it is um, the rabbis who create this culture where they go back to the Torah but then like use the Torah to in some ways – like, interpret their own kind of new vision of what Jewish life should be like. So yeah. it's going to in the Torah because they say it's in the Torah. Sure. But increasingly, I think there is a, a re-encounter with this um, mode of study in pluralistic communities, in secular communities. There's a secular yeshiva now in Israel. Like, there's a, an emergence of a kind of a new um, a, a renaissance of learning for people who are not necessarily going to practice Jewish law. And that's one of the reasons that I that I do want to push this as, as, as the, the potential center of the Jewish experiences because unlike so many other Jewish rituals, you don't have to do anything except show up and think and talk, you know? Like, you, you, don't, ha- you, don't, you don't have to take on any obligation. It's
1: but, I mean, that's not the—most Americans' experience of, say, Hebrew school is not that. I mean— That's because they're being offered a, a li-
3: literally like a different product. They're not being offered the religious experience of traditional, historical, uh, Talmudic, I would say, because I would say pre-Talmud, this ethic didn't exist. Judaism has nothing to do with deep-dive intellectual text study. It was only, like David said, after the destruction of the temple, when we scattered to the winds, when we became a diasporic people, that that study became the thing that kept us together. Before that, it was just like every other religion where, you know, bring the grain to the thing, kill the bird for you, you're all good, go back to, you know— tending to sheep or whatever you know and so and people here in America are being offered this third thing which is Hebrew school that's that's summer camp that's look, Sunday school look, I mean, yeah.
2: there's a, there's a real point like a strong point in what you're saying Dan which is that we're not doing Jewish education right and right. that there's a real need to expose people to the dynamism and the and the the magic of of Torah study but i think you can even tell in the name what part of the problem is that they call it Hebrew school, like the place where you come and you learn Hebrew. Learning a language is like, you know, didactic and and repetitive and boring. Like, they should call it Torah school. Like, it, it's, it's about bring it in. Well, I don't know. <laughs> But my point is that— they, like that, Mommy, I finally
3: realized I want to go. It's Torah school. It's not Hebrew school. My
2: point is that Torah refers to a kind of discourse, a kind of conversation whereas Hebrew is just the, the language. Now, the language might be the key to that conversation and it's complicated. I think part of the problem is that American Jews don't have access to the key
1: to it all, which is which is Hebrew. But to play sort of I guess so-called devil's advocate like you, Yep, the, you're speaking for the well, devil right, right now. I you, know. Yeah. The Torah, you know, I mean, I don't know what else your Torah
2: is 100% true if the, you were going to No, 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 no. that's now. not where I'm
1: going. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's one book. There's like a limited amount of text there. I know there's the Talmud as well. And that's, but like it's a finite amount of text. What's to keep – like once you've kind of done it, what's to keep studying?
2: Well, I do think that it is – there's two ways to be literate. One is to read a million books. And another is to read the same book a million times and to know it Ooh. like the back of your hand, to know it Dude. so well that you understand every new – and I'm suggesting that it's a book that's written – In order in, to be read that way. Yeah. But but the real – I mean that's 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 a kind of poetic answer. But the real answer is that what happens then when you have a whole people studying the same words over the centuries again and again is that you end up collecting – Commentaries, thoughts, reflections, so that when 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 I say Torah, I'm not just referring to the to the Hebrew Bible or the Five Books of Moses. I'm referring to the whole tradition of Talmud. thinking about Talmud,
3: Torah, Midrash. midrash, midrash, nice, crack nice. cocaine, not crack cocaine, no, not, crack cocaine, <laughs> not, not, cocaine not part of it.
1: No. Um, all right. Well, this has been a fascinating and very in depth conversation. Thanks, guys. Joel Stein is a writer for Time Magazine and the author of Man Made, A Stupid Quest for Masculinity. I began our conversation by asking him when he first realized he was Jewish at school.
0: No, I remember I had gone to like a Jewish preschool and I remember, I don't know if it was kindergarten or first grade, probably kindergarten. People asked, because Christian kids were confused that I wasn't Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember feeling weird when other kids were, were kind of all the identity stuff that you find out you're different, like when kids start asking you questions and trying to figure it out. And my son had this already. Oh,
1: yeah. So where what, yeah, what did he say?
0: Some kids were like, thought it was bad. Like, he's, like one thing is that he said, oh, my God, in school. And some Christian kid was like, you can't say that. it's a bad word. And he's like, what are you talking about? And then some kid asked me if he believed in God. And he's like, uh, we had never really gone over this. But he was like, no. And he told on him. Like, he told the teacher. <laughs> like. <laughs> you your know, son, you he got busted. He's satanic. We need to get him out of the school. <laughs> right. Yeah, basically. Burn We've him. got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Let's get him to the principal's office, see if we can sort this out. Wow. And he was very upset about that.
1: And so then did you have to kind of sit him down and be like, all right, well, here's, here's the deal. This is what, uh, you know, you're a Jew. Yeah, well. An atheist Jew. Are you an atheist? I am.
0: I am. But yeah. I didn't want to impose that on him yeah. but I guess like I've imposed so much on him by accident right um
1: and how old's your son
0: he's six okay so he... <laughs> do you remember the moment where you knew you were Jewish or that, that was I guess it was more for me knowing that, that was a weird thing
1: yeah I, I guess right yeah I think there was a time where I realized it was weird yeah and I'd gone to I'd gone to what I call Jew school like Hebrew school on the weekends um was starting very young I think pretty young yeah,
0: yeah. I didn't. My son is doing that right now okay. because my juvenile wife kind of pushed him into it at the Silver Lake <laughs> JCC. Right,
1: and is he? Are you? Is he getting a bar mitzvah? Is that?
0: That's the plan. I mean, I don't want to force him. He'll have a bar mitzvah if he wants to. He's on the path. He's going yeah. to that JCC He's thing. Going to the G, Yeah, yeah. Which I think gets you out of going to Hebrew school. I think you can just keep going to like instead of going to Temple, you can keep going to the JCC. Was
1: oh, that like a, during a lot the, of the, That's the during the week school. Like that's. His I think school. at some point
0: no 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 no. i'm sorry this is just like once every other sunday right now oh okay for like an hour uh, i have no idea okay. how long right. my wife takes them there but um <laughs> i remember going to hebrew school in like third grade uh-huh. just hating it oh i hated it i remember specifically asking my parents more like several times as if i was, were a lawyer will this count towards my college application will this be on my record well <laughs> right. the, they were like no this doesn't go to college I'm like are you certain the yeah. colleges will never know about what i do here they're like no this isn't for college and like at that point i was just in the principal's office all the time never did any work i was like this is a place where i can do it ever i want yeah yeah
1: it's a free-for-all it doesn't
0: count it's like an alternate life
1: did you keep going after oh no, no. oh my no. sister yeah. did yeah
0: which is shocking she's not much of a student she's not religious no, the moment I got my bar mitzvah, I said goodbye to – although I said goodbye to um, my rabbi, although he married us because Cassandra was looking for a rabbi and I didn't know any. So I called this guy who didn't remember me or anything and he uh, he's stole around and married us. Yeah, I think there are other ways to get bar mitzvah than going to a temple. I would think so. Yeah, which is appealing to me because I yeah. didn't mind the bar mitzvah part. I just minded the Hebrew school part.
1: Right. Yeah. Because because it was religious or because it was just like a oh, Saturday and- It
0: wasn't a Saturday. It was like after school and it became like three days a week. And it just was, it was like a crappy school. Yeah. Like, why would you want to go to
1: more school It's like about, school on top of school. It was
0: Holocaust school. Yeah. Like, who wants to go to Holocaust school? <laughs> it's like every, you know, three days a week, you're going to watch Holocaust movies, talk yeah. about the Holocaust, like, and it made, they made it boring too. That's why I wasn't scarred. I was just like, <laughs> they made the Holocaust super boring. <laughs> Like I've read books since then. I've read Night. I've read mm. um, uh, Victor Frankel. Holocaust is pretty dramatic and exciting. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Oh my god! They yeah. made it so boring.
1: That's so it's exciting. all about
0: numbers for them. Like, oh yeah. How many gypsies and how? Oh, yeah. who cares?
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, Joel, thanks for uh, stopping by here. Uh, mazel thanks on for the podcast. Thank you.
0: Shalom Aleichem.
1: All right, thanks, Joel. Thank you. Tiffany Schlain is an Emmy-nominated filmmaker, speaker, and the founder of the Webby Awards. She's received over 70 awards and distinctions for her films and work, including being on NPR's list of best commencement speeches and by Newsweek as one of the women shaping the 21st century. I want to talk about Character Day, which is coming up. But tell me a little bit about sort of your background.
4: Yeah, my background is, uh, you know, I'm a Jewish girl from Northern California who never really, (laughs) really strongly identified. We're very culturally Jewish. And with the food and the questioning and we go to high holidays. But nothing, not much more than that. And I founded the Webby Awards and ran that for nearly a decade. And then I wanted to start a film studio combined with the power of the web to make social change. And one of the first films I made was um, called The Tribe, which... explores American Jewish identity told through the history of the Barbie doll and it was an 18 minute film and I had a lot of fun um getting that film out into the world and making a whole discussion kit so people could have their own screening events and
1: that's so, because the the founder of the Barbie doll was or the creator yeah, was Jewish right yeah
4: and when I discovered that I was at this uh wonderful organization the first year called Reboot and uh, which is all about exploring American Jewish identity. And that weekend I read that Ruth Handler had created the Barbie dolls. So basically a Jew created the ultimate shiksa, which I thought was <laughs> the great irony of the 20th century and no one really knew it. And in her obituary, they kind of buried the lead on that. I thought that's such a great framing to explore identity. And I'm a blonde blue eyed Jew named Tiffany, and I don't have a Jewish sounding last name either. So, um, I've gone through my whole life where it's always a choice, um, until I married Ken Goldberg.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't sound Jewish. But
4: but we together, the tribe is really the culmination of our conversations about identity and using Barbie as a shul really to explore assimilation and all these different deep issues that I think a lot of American Jews grapple with. So made that, and then suddenly I was like Jewish poster child. (laughs) It was such an irony because, you know, I didn't belong to a shul. I felt like such a bad Jew all the time, and then suddenly— I was being invited to a lot of Jewish organizations to show the tribe, which was actually great because I always felt like such an outsider. And I realized that all Jews basically feel like outsiders, which was comforting. And then I started um, wanting to experiment with technology. Could I make films in a new way, both in the way we made them and the way we distributed them? So we made this film, The Science of Character, which looked at all this really interesting neuroscience and social research about character strengths. How can you develop who you are? Mm -hmm. And uh, based on this wonderful research that looks at every culture and all throughout history, and there's these commonalities of what we consider their 24 strengths that lead to these virtues. I thought it was so interesting. We made that film. We thought, let's premiere it in a new way. Let's give the film away for free with discussion cards and posters and see what happens. And you know, we were expecting like 250 organizations to do screenings, and the first year it was over 1,500. And then that film screened, and I went—I screened it in front of a lot of wonderful Jewish people, and they were like, the film's great, but why didn't you mention the deep Jewish history about character philosophy and development? I said, because I had no idea about it. <laughs> and then I felt like a bad Jew again. <laughs> That's a recurring theme. And, um, and I was fascinated to learn all about Musar, some people call it Musar, and it's this very old, like 10th century, you know, culmination of basically someone, people cherry picked all the ideas in Jewish history and philosophy about character, how to be a good person, what are all those practices. And we made a film called The Making of a Mensch, which is pretty much the Science of Character Through a Jewish Lens. And that premiered um, this past year. And again, has discussion kit. And, and we also premiered a film called The Adaptable Mind. So this year, Character Day is September 22nd, and everything's free. And um, we already have 28,000 screenings happening in over 40 countries. So it's very wow. exciting. I think this election has certainly helped people really wanting to focus <laughs> on <Sure>. character. <laughs> what does it mean to live a meaningful and purposeful life? Yeah. So that's interesting. So you... You were kind of on to this whole
1: idea of character, and then and then you realized that there is actually kind of a Jewish context for it, and
4: yeah, which was exciting for me because, you know, I kind of came late to my husband, um Ken, and I, and our daughters. we practiced Shabbat, which I didn't do growing up. And it's been this incredibly meaningful experience for me. And so I think my whole journey has been figuring out what really speaks to me and and I love the traditions of Judaism.. Um, but, you know, I'm more agnostic side of things. So I also looked through this science of character through a lens, whatever, wherever you are on the spectrum. If you're an atheist all the way to your orthodox, I think you would find these ideas really interesting. And if you're not Jewish, I mean, the ideas themselves are fascinating ways to think about developing, becoming a good person and working on yourself and being a mensch and teaching, you know, raising your kids to be mensches. And what are those specific things that you can do every day to work towards that? And so
1: and and talk a little bit more about uh musar and sort of what 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 is it what is it exactly and
4: Yeah. You know, it gives daily practices on oh, actually a really interesting distinction between character strengths and the way that musar views it is is that we all have in in musar it's called midot. So we all have these qualities that everyone has and you know patience courage all of these things and you can either have too much or too little and your whole practice in life or your curriculum or whatever you want to call it is to be able to measure and we use a metaphor in the film of pulling in the sails so patience is an incredible virtue but let's say you're you're too patient and you wait too long for social justice and so then if you have too you know if you have too much patience that could be a bad thing hmm. but you know, it's, it's all about finding ways to measure the right amount of that strength. And, you know, there's a lot of, and just to give you an example of character strengths that we based the science of character from it's you know, everything from um, persistence, courage, creativity, humor, love, um, and gratitude, which I know has been kind of a buzzword lately, but uh, when I was working on the film, I thought back to um, Amichai Lulevi, who just became a rabbi, and a dear friend of mine, and he was telling me that there's this Jewish idea of a hundred blessings a day, that all throughout the day you should be blessing things, and being grateful. And that can be like a Musar practice of counting your blessings is, you know, more gratitude— has proven in all the science that it leads to more happiness and more fulfillment. And what's really exciting about Musar, which is such an old philosophy, which was also exciting to me about the science of character, is there's these very, I mean, everyone from Aristotle to Plato talked about character development and all the Jewish philosophers, but now all the neuroscience supports these ideas. So there's tactical proof that if you work on things that you can rewire your mind, you can strengthen yourself, you can build parts of yourself up or down. So that probably was the most exciting aspect to me to underpin all of these ancient ideas. To me, films have always been, they're the appetizer and the discussion you have afterwards and the work you do afterwards is the main course. Mm -hmm. So these films are all short, I should also say. So um, you know science characters like 8 minutes making of a is 10 minutes so the goal is you you watch the film either in a big setting or an intimate setting and then you go into it we have these really fun questions and thought experiments to delve deeper and then we have this very big resource hub that we're launching on Character Day and of course an app because you know it's the 21st century sure. but a way to sort of like let's say you say I want to uh, have my child work on generosity and what are some Practices or books or films, apps, or games that can build that. Or I want to work on patience or empathy or courage. And we'll have this cool interface where it's almost like a mad lib sentence I am an adult looking for books or films on courage. And and then it'll give you a list. Or I'm an educator. and we have like a mensch button where you can have the Jewish version of all the resources and <laughs> we're collecting all of those. But mensch is such a fabulous word. And and one of my goals of this project also is to reclaim it absolutely for women because mensch is often used for men. But if you look at the history of the word, it is for both men and women. And again, it's the 21st century, so I'd like that to be for everyone. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely.
1: And so, uh, if people want to find out more about uh, Character Day and signing up or getting their organization signed up, what do they do?
4: Yeah, they just they go to CharacterDay.org, and it's all very simple.
1: All right, great. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by the Kibitz.
4: Oh, I'm happy to be on your show. I love your show. Oh, thanks. Really, really enjoying it.
1: Ari Kelman is the Jim Joseph Chair in Education and Jewish Studies and Professor of Religious Studies at Stanford's Graduate School of Education. He's also the author of Station Identification, A Cultural History of Yiddish Radio. The interview goes a little longer than my usual ones, uh, partially because I'm getting married in about two weeks and I just did not have the time to do my fine-tuned editing on this. But also, I think it's a really interesting interview and I think you'll enjoy it. So, here it goes. Welcome to the Kibbutz, Ari Kelman. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. You know, this is our back to school episode. And so there's kind of two things we're talking about. One is Hebrew school um, and sort of, you know, I talk about kind of my own terrible memories of Hebrew school, as do a couple of other guests. Um, And then we'll talk about kind of college campuses since that's where you are now. But, um, you know, I know you have, you've done some research a little bit about, about Hebrew school and, and you've got kids that are five and three and um, you know, what, what have you sort of discovered in your research and, and what do you think is working or not working about the kind of current Hebrew school model?
6: So I don't really spend a lot of time in Hebrew schools uh, m- much like most people. Um, right. It's not, it, it was um, I'll say this and I say this with great sympathy. It is not currently, I think a model that, is well suited to today's families or educational landscape. When it was like invented in the early part of the 20th century in cities like New York, um, really in, in New York, Baltimore, whatever, um, it the people who were driving the creation of what became known as Hebrew schools were quite enamored of American public schools, which were giving these Jewish immigrant kids a chance to integrate into American life and culture. Mm -hmm. And they were, and they were free and they were, you know, and they they were great. They were really great institutions. It may have also have coincided, not coincidentally with like the apex of American public schooling. They were public, they were urban, um, and so on. And in some neighborhoods in cities like New York or Chicago, Philadelphia, like the public schools would have been 80% Jewish, um, I would have had lots of Jewish teachers in them as well. And then going to Hebrew school was, you know, on top of that. Um, and the idea was that if schools have a particular kind of look, they have age segregated classrooms, they have teachers with blackboards, they have desks, they have grades, they have drills and so on. Then successful Jewish education, because that's what secular, secu- successful secular education looked like. Successful Jewish education would, should resemble that. Yeah. And so they created these schools that had all those features uh, report cards and so on. And, um, I don't know that it ever actually worked, but at the time I could see that being like, Oh yes, the, the, the best of what people seem to know about education looks like public schools. So we're going to take that and we're going to adapt it to a Jewish setting. We're going to stick it on Sundays or on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. And it'll be great. It'll just be, it'll be like, you know, extended school and school. So wonderful. Uh, we've come to learn a fair amount about how people learn in the decades since, mm-hmm. um, And, uh, I think anybody who's ever spent time in a Hebrew school, I didn't go to Hebrew school as a kid, but I taught in Hebrew schools in high school, college, and graduate school. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm historically part of the problem. Um, thanks a lot. Uh, um, I, um, uh, I forget where I was going with this exactly, but, uh, um, it, nobody who who spends time in those schools like thinks that set, having kids sit down for two more hours of the day behind a desk is like a great learning, um, environment for, for American kids in this day and age. Sure. Um, anybody who's ever spent time in Hebrew school knows that and the sort of anecdotal, you know, stuff from any kid who's ever spent time as a student in Hebrew school knows that feeling of getting out of public school or private school having to schlep across town or having to take a carpool or having to do whatever. And then being told to sit and do more drills so that they can learn to read the shma with, you know, properly um, from four to six on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. It's almost structurally just a losing
1: proposition. Yeah. So what's um, the, yeah, what's the answer or do you know?
6: Oh, I don't have an answer. Um, <laughs> but I do think that the, the what, what, what fascinates me about Hebrew schools is that parents still send their kids to them.
1: Yeah, I'm shocked that they do.
6: Um, they do. They it continues to be the, for for students who receive some sort of formal Jewish education, Hebrew school, religious school, supplementary school, whatever you want to call it, is still the biggest game in town. Um, I think part of the reason people send their kids there is so that they can have or become a bar bat mitzvah through a synagogue, because synagogues tie the bar bat mitzvah to X number of years of Hebrew school attendance. Sure. So that might be it. So, but that's a much bigger fish than just to fry than just, um, you know, how, how Hebrew school or religious school should look mm-hmm. because it actually ties into, cause people love B'nai Mitzvah. Kids love them. Parents love them. Communities are sort of ambivalent about them. Rabbis, I think, enjoy them or are tolerant of them, but appreciate them. Yeah. Um, disconnecting the two is an interesting idea. Um, but synagogues also see Hebrew schools as way of bringing in families with young kids kind of into the community. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not just a matter of like changing the school, but I think what, I think there's these, uh, ties between the school this very important, um, rite of passage, the bar Bar and the synagogue are like interconnected in this way that, um, that in which the onus on this, on a synagogue to really make. I think would be significant changes to this educational programming. Um, uh, the the sort of force on that isn't strong enough to really encourage them to do that. And the resources that they have to do it are, are, are usually pretty thin even for, for fairly um, well-established congregations.
1: Right. Interesting. All right. Well, I, now I sort of want to move now onto onto uh, the uh, more your current uh, field of expertise yeah um, which is you know you're not you're not only a professor but you're also uh, I guess a dorm parent as well right, at Stanford.
6: I'm, I'm not just yeah. I'm also a client. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I, I bought the company. Um, so what's you know what is life on campus like for a Jew uh, these days for a Jewish student?
6: Uh, I don't know. I, I, I haven't asked them. Yeah. Um,
1: what do you, what's the, your sense? I, I,
6: and Stanford is. Uh, every campus is is really different and this year students haven't even shown up yet. They don't come for another, uh, two weeks. Mm -hmm. The first year students who are the students that I, um, work with directly. Um, I think for students, I think it's very confusing. Um, they hear a lot about what is going to happen and what is coming down the pike and a lot of expectations about what college life is supposed to be like, whether that's trigger warnings or partying. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) If they're students whose parents or grandparents or communities are um, active in a way in Jewish life, they've certainly heard about uh, BDS movement or about students just in Palestine as much as they've heard about birthright Israel um, and other things. And they've almost certainly uh, heard about Hillel in in one fashion or another. Mm -hmm. Uh, with respect to students, I, th- I think I th- the the environment right now in higher education in in the United States is is extraordinary, and I don't think anybody knows what to make of it. Uh-huh. So, literally, this morning, I you know somebody posted something to their Facebook. A friend of mine who teaches at another school, and it was an article about <clears throat> you know tenured members of faculty getting uh, warned or fired. There have been a couple of high profile cases of. People whose who's who have been brought up on sort of effectively violations of one policy or another, and um, but whose behavior, whose writing, doesn't, from my understanding, warrant that kind of um, those kinds of charges. Mm. And similarly, you have um, you know the University of Chicago famously sent out this letter two weeks ago to its incoming class that was basically like. Dear students, if you expect trigger warnings, you're not going to get them here. Yeah. Toughen up and grow up, which I think is kind of deeply um, uh, uh, like sort of retro conservatism of the Enlightenment that I don't think is helpful for students either. Um, There's a piece in the New York Times this morning about trigger warnings, and that was arguing that it's not coddling students; it's actually trying to make spaces where people can engage in in uh, you know, in, in conversations that are going to lead to intellectual and personal growth hmm. in a way that does not um, privilege one kind of experience over another but tries to create a safe space. I, I'm, uh, that, that term just seems so loaded, but try to create a space in which people can do that um, on equal footing. And that's the kind of, those are the kind of classrooms that I um, aspire to be part of. As a right, of but I mean, isn't that, that kind I,
1: of the nature okay. of what a classroom is? Is like a space where you can have a conversation that might be challenging on equal footing?
6: Yeah. There's a difference between challenging, um, which I'm all for, yeah. and, um, and insensitive, sure, which I'm not for. And I think that the range of ways in which we as educators are being asked to be sensitive is expanding um, and moving in dimensions that we, that had not formerly been, um, you know, sort of part of the way that the universities work. And I don't think this is like, and so I think it's actually, it's okay. I think there are, there are, and there are, and there have been in this, like really it feels like a convulsion in the university going back a couple of years um, uh, that isn't settled down yet. So you're going to have, mistakes will be made. (laughs) Um, You're going to have policies that are, poorly written and poorly implemented. Uh, You know, Stanford is, is, uh, an example of that, but there's lots of other ones across the country and you're going to have, um, people who are, uh, ferociously, um, you know, one way or another. So the university of Chicago letter is, is one of those things. And what's happening at Oberlin is another example Mm -hmm. where it's not even about policy or curriculum. It's about sort of, um, students expectations of what the university is supposed to be. And I think that their students are arriving, um, with expectations that, that the university is ill equipped to handle in a lot of ways. Um, and it just adds to the confusion. No. Um, and I don't know when the dust is going to settle. And I don't know what it's going to look like, if it's going to be better or worse, if it's going to be good or bad. And I think the Jewish students are entering right smack dab in the middle of it. Like, you have um, Jewish students uh, would that hold a variety of commitments to all kinds of things. Um, you have to religion, to ethnicity, to sexuality, to identity, to ju- to whatever their notion of justice might be,
5: mm-hmm.
6: um, to Israel, to to not Israel, um, to Palestine, and so on. And Jewish students are arriving on campus like every other student um, into a, a, a sort of situation where the the informal and sometimes formal rules that governed um, like that governed university life, both in class and out of class, are are changing in, in quite dramatic ways. Or at least they seem to be um, unsettled in ways that are that are um, that are new for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean I, I went to Wesleyan in the early you know, I entered Wesleyan in I guess eighty nine and it was <laughs> like kind of the beginning of the of the PC you know, PCU yeah. actually, that movie was written by a Wesleyanite about Wesleyan. Um, and okay. I remember being a freshman the first week and people were like saying, blah, 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 PC, everything's PC, And I was like, I didn't even know what PC was. I came from Denver. Right. <laughs> In Denver, we didn't talk PC anyway. Um, but it's, it, you know, it seems like we've definitely reached kind of a fever pitch of like, of how do we, you know, how do we just have conversations about anything? And, uh, so you wrote a really interesting piece that just came out in Tablet Magazine. Um, it's sort of like a, an open letter to, to students, uh, new students that are, are entering college. And um, and you sort of ask them to challenge their own loyalties. I mean, the, the subhead of the, of the piece is to challenge their own loyalties, assumptions, and biases. And I think you you know isn't you sort of challenge students to, to embrace the discomfort that that learning requires and do you think that, that students nowadays expect to be too comfortable i mean is like which seems to kind of lean towards the the, the university of chicago paradigm is like stop trying to be so comfortable like part of part of education is being uncomfortable
6: I think I mean, I think part of it is that, on the other hand i don't I didn't at all intend the piece to come off as a sort of defense of University of Chicago's letter. I call them out you know, in the middle of that piece,
5: yeah,
6: um, if you're going to learn learning is is like at its core about um, changing the way you think about whatever it is you think. Right. so if I'm learning to program computers, I'm learning to code, then I'm actually learning. Learning means getting better at coding, which means being able to do things I did. I, I you know, do different things in the future. I'm learning about history. It means learning, coming to better understand a particular event or figure, or idea, and how that evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is, at its essence, I think, a way of it. It, it does damage to the way you think the world works.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, and 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 that I, I really fundamentally believe in that. I don't think that. I do not think that students are. Too comfortable or you know coddled, um, in some ways. I mean, there there are certainly ways in which our frosh arrive to campus that are coddled, but there's lots more that aren't. But it has very little to do with their kind of intellectual growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there. So my 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 point in that article was like there is going to you are going to be uncomfortable. You shouldn't be offended. Yeah. Um, and I think that we have a ways to go to understand the difference between you know, sort of legitimate hate speech, ideas that make me uncomfortable, and, um, you know, a sort of policy violation. Yeah. Um, and, and, but there's ways to engage in uncomfortable activities that are not threatening. Right. Um, that are productive, that are um, uh, built on uh, fundamental respect for the diversity of student experiences and identities. Um, and that, like those two things, like in, it's easy in, you know, a newspaper article to say students are either too coddled or we're going to hold to, you know, old school models of, of learning. Um, and, uh, and of course it's both of those things all the time.
1: Sure. Well, and you say that the, you know, in the piece you said that students have been arriving to schools that are largely and now more obviously, I'm quoting you here, and now more obviously ill-equipped to address the diversity of needs and changing cultures with which students arrive. Like, why is, so? I mean, so it sounds like the institutions themselves are, um, are having problems, uh, you know, d- dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Why totally. is that? I mean, I mean, mean Yeah.
6: Well, like, um, I mean, I, I, I can't say, I can't say why, but, you know, so I can just, I can talk about Stanford. Um, so something like, I, I forgot what the numbers are. Um, well, I won't take, uh, uh, sexual assault is a real problem on American college campuses. Sure. That goes without saying the numbers for women who graduate in four years are somewhere between 25 and 45%, which means that Jeez. near a quarter to almost a half of all women who spent four years at American university experience some sort of unwanted sexual conduct and the numbers for um, trans people and queer people are even higher. Um, If, if a quarter of our students like caught norovirus.
1: Yeah, that would be, or
6: (laughs) right. Like they would shut this place down and like scrub it top to bottom and norovirus you can recover from. Yeah. Like you can literally like, you'll be fine. You'll be sick for a while, but you'll be fine. Sure. Um, recoveries from sexual assault and unwanted sexual advances are, are, are much more complicated and sometimes don't, don't sort of quote unquote fully happen in the way that you can recover from a cold. But like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And the fact that our university, that this university hasn't sort of responded in a more proactive way, they're doing things and they're doing things. Um, you know, some would say they're doing them too slowly. Some would say they're not doing anything at all. Some would say it's just window dressing. Um, I do think that the administration is trying to do things, but they're moving very slowly. Mm. Um, right? And that's just one, like, that's just one, um, it's one area that affects all, um, and one particular segment of our student, and half of our students, um, in more significant ways, I would say. Um, but, uh, you know, but I don't think the university is, is, um, quite as proactive as it could about educating around this issue. <laughs> um, it has, I, uh, it has, yeah. So, and there's, there's all kinds of ways in which, um, schools are not, um, not really moving uh I think um uh quickly enough to yeah. address uh these kinds of these kinds of questions.
1: Sure. So uh I mean to to go more into the into the Jewy realm, um yeah. you also write in the in your piece that the the Israel Palestine issue is so combustible quote People would sooner avoid talking about it than risk what they fear the consequences might be. Should open and honest conversation take place, uh, which which you go on to say, which makes being a Jew on campus legitimately difficult. And yeah, you know, I'm curious how you've seen that play out among your students and. And how do you, you know, I, it, I mean, I'm, I'm always afraid to even open the, 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 the Israel can of worms on this podcast because I know it's, it's just, it's just like, where do you begin? But you know, how do you advise students to approach it and, and how have you seen it play out?
6: Um, well, Dan, I mean what you just said, right? You're afraid to talk about it on this podcast and this podcast is its own thing, right? Like yeah. it just hangs out there in the universe. Um, so the fact that you're afraid to talk about it on your podcast, um, you are not alone in that. Lots and lots of people, um, American Jews, uh, like, I, like I read the piece, like they'd rather just not talk about it than, than talk about it and face three repercussions. Yeah. So there was a, a piece that came out in Haaretz, I don't know, about a month ago, um, by two American Jewish historians where they basically said, we're done with Israel. I can't talk about it anymore. I'm out. Like the policies continue to be, offensive to me. They continue to run against my political beliefs. I can't walk into a synagogue anymore because of that. And the blowback against them for saying that, just saying, I want to be an American Jew without Israel, um, period. The blowback against them was so ferocious and, and like, so uh, sort of out of scale for the, for the nature of what they wrote. Like, why can't we have American Jews who are Jews without Israel? It seems like a reasonable position to me. And so and, and that moment of their article and the response to their article, some of which was, was vicious and mean. Um, and some of which the I response, thought was more sorry. thoughtful, the responses, yeah. some of which I thought was more thoughtful. Um, tell it uh, is just further evidence for this fact that people would rather not talk about it than really talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so when students come to campus, Jewish students come to campus and don't want to get involved in things having to do with Israel or, um, just want to spend the next four years learning to dance or being in theater or really concentrating on being a finance major, or whatever um, they're doing what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why we expect them to be different in that regard, right. particularly around this thing that <laughs> right. nobody, particularly around this thing that nobody understands
5: Yeah.
6: and Jewish and the Jewish community in particular, Jewish community organizations in particular are not like giving anybody the tools for talking about it. I don't mean that they should go to some sort of like, um, you know, properly how to fight BDS on campus seminar. That's not what I'm talking about. That is also not talking about issues. That's like retrenchment. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know why the expectation is that Jewish students are going to get to campus and all of a sudden be able to solve big problems that, um, that people who are much more knowledgeable than the students are, um, can't do, and not even solve problems. Have conversations that people who are much more experienced than them can't have. Sure, I've seen roomfuls of like regular, sort of normal, sane people like explode into crazy fights um, over this issue. So I don't know why we expect students to all of a sudden be able to like walk in and be cool, calm, collected, and then and then you tie in the fact that on college campuses and elsewhere there are strong uh, connections between, say, Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. Students for Justice in Palestine, um, where the political activists on campus have pretty strong critiques of the state of Israel and the Jews who's maybe domestic, Jews who tend to be liberal, American Jews who tend to be liberal, their maybe domestic attitudes would align with those, those activists, find that they can't, um, fi- find themselves caught between um, increasingly um, incompatible positions if they're mm-hmm. students who who support the state of Israel,
5: mm-hmm.
6: um, and who are in favor of you know better policing of the police and yeah. less violence yeah. and racism and you know class seven stuff, so so, um, it, uh, so those things I think for for American Jewish students these days are particularly pronounced.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, some of that leads nicely into our the, the our next month's episode, which is about Jews and activism, but. Um, I do think that there's a, it's an interesting it's almost a burden on Jewish students that you know if you, if you are Jewish then you you are somehow responsible for defending Israel's policies. I mean, do you and I mean, and I feel that just as a just as a regular American Jew that occasionally wanders into a, a conversation about it. Um, and do you feel? I mean, is that does that happen on campus as well? Whereas like, you know, like you said, they're they're just, they're just being students, but then they get kind of roped into these conversations. And yeah,
6: sometimes, sometimes they get roped in those conversations against their better, you know, against their will and better judgment. Like, um, I've had more than one conversation with Jewish students who say, and adults as well, who say, I, I occasionally find myself in conversations where I'm defending a position that I don't agree with. Yeah. um, that is all too common among the people, um, among people I've spoken to. Yeah. Um, and I think Jewish students uh, find that as well. And so ra- on so for many of them, I think um, for some subset of them, rather than be pulled into those discussions, they avoid them entirely. Right. Much like grownups do.
1: Right. And which, what do you think is the better choice? Or is there no? Uh,
6: I don't think defending a position that you don't believe in is, 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 uh, is, um, particularly healthy most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I make my students do it as an, as an intellectual exercise sometimes, but that's a different thing. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, it can be, it, it is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the statistics are 31% of American Jews, um, don't, say that they don't have much of a connection to the state of Israel in the first place. So we're already like, that's, that's about a third of American Jews. Yeah. Um, so it's not like this is a marginal phenomenon.
1: Sure.
6: Um, and on college campuses where everything is heated up,
5: Mm -hmm.
6: (laughs) um, it, you know, everything is, the heat is turned up on everything on college campuses. Um, I wouldn't. Ex- I I don't know why I would expect the dynamics to to be all that
1: different. Right, of course. Um, and I guess last, I want to talk about uh, you. You also make a note in your tablet story that there's a resurgence of genuine anti-Semitism, the likes of which we have not seen for some time. Uh, yeah. How How have you seen that play out on campus? What and you know is it, it? Seems like it's getting worse. And I mean that that's obviously a reflection of what we're seeing across the country, but.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated, as everything is. Sure. Um, but definitely, I see things. I mean, I'm, I don't want to get in the game of saying, well, that's anti-Semitism, and that's, like, uh, that's not anti-Semitism, because everybody has, I think, their own kind of... Um, some people look at everything, and they're like, well, that's anti-Semitism, and that's anti-Semitism. And some people look at everything and fail to see anti-Semitism where it is. And I have my own sort of... Anti-Semitism meter, mm-hmm. you know, that kicks off every now and again, and um, and other people would say that my meter is poorly calibrated, you know, um, but definitely like so on, on my campus last year, one of the student, the, the story is so crazy that like I got to give the backstory to the story, but like so the backstory is that. um a, a, a handful of Jewish students bring before the student Senate a resolution, I don't know if it's a resolution or it's a something, to, to mandate anti-Semitism training of the student senators, that the student senators should have to take a mandatory anti-Semitism training. Mm-hmm. So that's the bill that's brought before the student Senate. So in the debate about the bill, one of the student senators says, well, something to this effect. Um, You can look it up online if you want to. Those are, he says, "Well, it's a legitimate conversation that we should have about Jews running the media." Right. So this, right. So this is in a now. um, So that is something I would say. That is probably anti-Semitism in a conversation about, about, training about anti-feminism, trailing, right. I mean, it's like too Jesus. it's like too good to be true like a he, thing. he then so then like in the in the daily this is like all kind of campus politics and that comment got a lot of news more news than it was worth
5: yeah
6: um, in the daily somebody wrote uh, one of the editors of the daily wrote a very sharp I thought even maybe over the top sometimes critique of the senator and then the senator wrote a wonderful non-apology apology uh-huh. for what he said slash defense of what he said that was kind of uh, silly. Um, but um, uh, so stuff like that that I didn't, you know, I I don't think I heard very often or at all maybe for the last, I mean, since I've been in higher, since I was in graduate school and, and since I've been a professor, which is going on 10 years now, um, right? I just haven't, I hadn't heard those things. There's always, there's always been like swastika spray painted sort of in random incidents. Um, but I feel like that guy, like the, the comments of that student, um, uh, uh, what happened at UCLA, um, the sort of accusation that the student couldn't be a good senator because I think it was a she in that case was Jewish. Um, the Some of the things that Joy Correga, who is a professor at Oberlin, has posted to her Facebook page, I think crossed the line from legitimate political conversation into like Serious, good old fashioned anti-Semitism, like pictures cool. of the Rothschilds with, like you know, biting the heads off of the world and sucking right. out its money, like those kinds of things, that are like really old fashioned. Yeah, um, and certainly that I'm sort of surprised to see them back. But I think those really cross the line from political, and and they are out there and they should be fought against. Yeah. Um, but I don't. But I also think that um, that those are not; those don't represent the kind of mainstream views of most people there quite spectacular examples, um, of ways in which people, uh, either wittingly or unwittingly, uh, cross that line. And so I think that the, so people point to those things. Stanford is a terrible place for Jewish students because they had the sender who said this really dumb thing. And you know what? Students say dumb things all the time. Sure. Yeah. Um, and if I had to sort of take my dorm, which is as random a sample of incoming frosh as any other dorm, um, the things I talk about with my staff in terms of the, the insensitivities insensitivities of incoming frosh are about, they're about everything. Mm-hmm. They're about race. They're about sexuality. They're about gender. They're about class. Um, they're about religion. They're about secularism. Like they students come in to universities, not knowing a whole lot about the world, which is why they're here.
1: Right. That's the point.
6: That's yeah. the point. And part of the thing that Stanford really prides itself on is, is um, the, the conversations that happen between students outside of class, where they meet people who are really from different backgrounds than they are. And, and those encounters and those conversations often get off to a pretty rough start, Hmm. you know, because you have people who say stuff that was okay in where they're from, whether they're from like New York city or whether they're from a small town in Texas, things that are okay where they're from that don't, that other people hear and they're like, whoa, whoa, that hurt my feelings or, you know, that's not, you know, or that I find that offensive because those are about me or people I know or people I love. And then they have a conversation, hopefully a reasonable conversation about why that is. Um, Sometimes that escalates into, um, you know, silencing or accusations or, or those kinds of things. Yeah. Most of the time, (laughs) um, both people or the set of people who are involved in that conversation learn something, um, from it and grow a little bit from it. And that's kind of the, the point. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that those encounters are pleasant, uh, for everybody, but it, but they're I think within the bounds of what we can consider reasonable conversation on the university campus between people. Sure. And so actually so if you look at the studies, there's, there, there are three studies Recently, of anti Semitism on college campuses. One of them I think is total bullshit. The other two I think are reasonable. I don't love them, but they're reasonable. And in the reasonable, the two reasonable the one that I think is bullshit is by the Amcha Initiative. The, the two reasonable ones, one of which came out of Trinity College, one of which came out of Brandeis, both found an increased incidence of anti Semitism, anti Semitic incidents on campus. And both of them found that most of those incidences were not in classrooms, but were peer to peer. Mm. Incidentally, they also found that more Jewish, more Jewish students who identified as politically conservative, if you were a Jewish student who identified as politically conservative, you were more likely to report an incident of anti-Semitism, which suggests some blurring here around the Israel issue. Right. Anyway, um, but, but they both agreed that, um, Jewish students, incidents of anti-Semitism are more likely to happen peer to peer, which suggests that these conversations are happening. um, and I don't think that a good idea is to just sort of like whip out the anti-Semitism stick and sort of beat people with it. Um, nor do I think that students saying insensitive things uh, is a new, is, I don't think that's a new thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that it, it, it uh, takes the onus off of uh, faculty and people involved in residential life um, from helping students whose own limitations result in um, in uh, in in sexist language or homophobic language or anti-Semitic language or racist language or classist language, mm-hmm. um, you know the goal is to to help them do that, and they can't do that unless they show they're hard. So, but but we are seeing. I mean, I but I think some of these really spectacular examples, um, you know, set people off. So, sure. like, no, I don't think Stanford is a bad place for Jewish students. I don't think Columbia is a bad place for Jewish students, or UCLA or Berkeley or any of these places you know, Columbia is like 30% Jewish for God's sake. Wow. You're going to tell me it's a bad place for Jewish students. (laughs) Um, So I do think they're they're challenging places and the politics make it more so.
1: Sure. I don't know. And I think it's also, there's just kind of a general sense of, of the way discourse is in this country and the the kind of polarization that, that everyone feels is just like, you just can't talk about anything anymore without, you know, everybody just flipping out. Um, and
6: right. I mean, you yeah, there's a piece on the New Yorker, um, I can't remember who wrote it. Um, yeah, I think it was George Packer mm. about sort of, he went and he kind of hung out at Trump rallies for a little while. And, and in both, and, and he reports on some of the Trump supporters oh, yeah, and their, that. you know, deplorable behavior. But then he also reports on the people who are protesting Trump and some of their deplorable behavior. Like, yeah, it's just not a good see Like discourse, Public discourse, productive discourse between people who disagree about things in this country is like the quality of that discourse is just at an all time low. Yeah, absolutely. probably. It seems. So. Um, so, again, why would Jews in Israel be any, why would they somehow be exempt from this? Right. Um, and, and nobody else is going to figure it out. Nobody has figured it out. No.
1: But that's um, your job as an academic. Right.
6: I can help. I can do my small part with the few <laughs> students who come to my classes and the few students who live in my dorm.
1: Right. Well, good.
6: But it's a big. I mean, you know, it's a huge problem.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Well, I wish you luck with your incoming students this semester, and uh, maybe we'll check back with you at the end of the year and see how it went. Cool. Thanks yeah. a lot, Tim. Okay. Thanks for uh, stopping by the Kibitz. You got it. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hey, Kibitzers! I have some exciting news. My band, Ray and Remora, which is responsible for a lot of the music you hear on the podcast, has a new album coming out September 16th. Uh, It's available on iTunes and Amazon and most other places where one would buy music. So please check us out online at rayandremora.com. That's R-E-M-O-R-A. That's my own little plug, people. All right, that is it for this episode of The Kibitz. If you liked it, as usual, please rate us and review us on iTunes. It takes you two seconds, and it, it really brightens up our day. And spread the word. Tell your friends. Uh, tell your congregation at your temple. Send us feedback at kibbutzpod at gmail.com or tweet us at kibitzpod. And please give us a like on the old Facebook. You can follow me at Dan Crane here. I'd like to thank our guests, the Kasher brothers, Joel Stein, Tiffany Schlein, and Ari Kelman. For more from Moshe Kasher, go to moshekasher.com, and check out Rabbi David Kasher's brilliant podcast at parshanut.com. Joel Stein is online at thejoelstein.com, and check out his book, Man Made. For more on Character Day, go to characterday.org, and you can find Tiffany Schlein on Twitter at tiffany schlein. Ari Kelman is also on Twitter at a y kelman. That's a y k e l m a n. This episode was produced and edited by me, Dan Crane, with help from Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski. Additional engineering by Brett Morris. Special thanks to David Katz Nelson and Francine Hermelin. Earwolf, and as always, Reboot. Music was provided by my current band, Ray and Ramora. That's right, check us out. And my old band, Noonam Plu. And as my great-grandmother used to say... That's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Thanks for listening to The Kibbits.